All right, we're going to be in Psalm 39. And uh, I was struck this week in reading through the Psalms just how um, insightful this Psalm is about our hearts and about how it is that we can go about fighting sin. The Puritan preacher John Owen said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And that's a a great quote to remember. In this psalm, in Psalm 39, David is dealing with his own heart. I don't know about you, but I've had the experience, much more recently and more frequently than I would like to admit, where I know what is right to do. So knowledge is not the issue. Application is. I know how my heart should respond when my kids are frustrating me. I know that I should not become agitated or um, short with them. I know how I should react when I'm caught in a traffic jam and I'm already running five minutes late. I know how I should act when any number of other situations arise. But then there's the reality of when my heart spills over. A huge piece of the puzzle for for my understanding, for our understanding of how we fight sin is laid out for us here in Psalm 39. And so I just want to read through this and see what kinds of things we can glean. But before I do that, I just want to read from Romans 7. Um, There are all kinds of views on what Romans 7 is supposed to be. Some very faithful believers say that Romans 7 is talking about what our life was like before Christ. And then there are other very faithful believers who believe that Romans 7 talks about our experience as believers. Even as believers, we can wrestle with with sin in the way that Paul talks about in Romans 7. I'm in the second camp. I I think that Romans 7 talks about what happens in the life of even a believer. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm, I'm in good company. If you're confused about that, you're in very good company because the... Buchanan Professor of Biblical Interpreta- of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Tom Schreiner, had to rewrite his commentary. He has this commentary that I've, I own, and when, when the new edition came out, he had to rewrite this portion because he had changed his view on it. And so, um, but anyway, so I don't think any of us have the market cornered on exactly every little detail in the Bible, but I'm going to read to you a couple of a couple of verses here. He says this in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So he's kind of talking in the past tense. He's talking about his, maybe his experience with the law. He tried to follow the law, and this is what, make many, this is what makes many people think it was talk, he was talking about his life before Christ, and so that's where that comes from. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. 
So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What he's talking about here is when you go to the Old Testament and you see all the regulations that we're supposed to be able to follow, it's a fool's errand to try to get salvation by perfect obedience to the law because nobody can do it. The purpose of the law was to put a mirror up in front of us to show us how far short we fall and to drive us to, to seek a Savior. That was the purpose of the law, and that's what Paul's talking about here. Verse 13, he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, he says in verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I, but sin that dwells with me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So there you can see, this sounds like something that a believer would say. I hate that I sin. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm not trying to justify it. When I do it, it tears me up. Then verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with mine, but with my flesh I serve the sin. I serve the law of sin. And then chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 begins this beautiful chapter of victory in Christ. Chapter 7 shows the depth of the trap that sin has us in and even, I think, can ensnare a believer. But the believer has this desire to flee from it and also has the reality that Christ will free us from it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anyway, just wanted to read Romans 7 to set up Psalm 39. Let's read in Psalm 39. It says this in verse 1. I said, okay, so this is autobiographical. This is David speaking about his own experience. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. So he's taking some actions here. I will guard my ways. I'll muzzle my mouth. I'm gonna, he, he's trying very hard to control his sin nature. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. 
And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me, and I mused, and the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. What do you think came out (laughs) after he mused and after the fire burned? And then he says in verse 4, Oh Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all of my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth that is dear to him. what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not hold your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's examine a couple of things in just the first three verses. I think it's important to go back and read those again just to refresh our memory. Psalm 39, the first three verses says this, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. You can see here David seeing how holy God is and desiring, you know what? I need to be a man of clean tongue. I don't need to tell any dirty jokes. I don't need to gossip. I don't need to say anything that is not seasoned with grace. And so he says, okay, how am I going to go about this? What am I going to do to make sure that my speech is pure? So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll really watch every word that I say. I'll guard my steps. Secondly, I need to do something. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth. I will muzzle my mouth. I'll put some kind of outside reminder or outside restrainer on me. Maybe whenever someone says something to me and I begin to get upset, I'll just count to ten and that'll be my thing. I'll make a new rule. Maybe that will make me holy. But then he says in verses 2 and 3, I was mute and silent. In other words, I was holding my tongue. I was doing a really good job. But even though I was holding my tongue, my heart hadn't changed. I was mute and silent, but I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. In other words, you see, David thought that if he could just control his behavior enough, if he could just hold his mouth right and pull himself up by his bootstraps and white-knuckle this thing, that he could make himself more holy. But he says, all that did was bottle up what was already in my heart. It was not my tongue that needed the fixing. It was my heart that needed the fixing because the tongue and the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. He says in verse 3, My heart became hot within me, 
And as I mused, in other words, as I sat there and mulled on it, as I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. See what's happening here. We have a problem. And our problem can't be fixed by outward solutions. He tried a few things here. This is on your page. He tried vigilance. So I'll just be extra vigilant. I'll double down. It's time to really batten down the hatches on this problem I've got. Maybe my speech problem. So I will guard my ways. But he thought by paying extra attention to his ways that that would prevent sin. Secondly, he tried behaviorism. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Like I'll put some kind of extra accountability on me. And that's a good thing. It's just insufficient. He thought that an outward restriction would provide a fence around his tendencies. And then thirdly, he, he just tried brute force of will. I was mute and silent. In other words, I just sat there and bit my tongue. But the problem wasn't his vigilance or his, his will, his, his, how strong his will was. The problem was in his heart. You can picture the steam on a, on a, on a kettle on the stovetop beginning to, to whistle as the heart begins to boil. And what's inside is beginning to, to come out. What's the result of his strategy? Well, his distress grew worse. His heart became hot within him. He mused and as the fire burned, he spoke with his tongue. The story of David mirrors a few things that the Bible teaches about our hearts. The first thing is the content of the heart is the sum of who we are. Who we are in our thoughts, who we are in our heart, is who we really are. Not the image that we can project on social media. And not the polished version that we may be able to maintain three times a week in the church building. Who we are is who we are in our heart. The Bible teaches this in a few places. Matthew 12. Matthew 12 says, Either make the tree good and its, free, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. That's what Matthew, is. what Jesus says in Matthew. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. That's a scary thought right there. James 1.13 gives us another challenge. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, our deepest problems are not outside of us. Our deepest problems 
are inside of us. We all carry the seeds of our own destruction in our own heart. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The last one I'll give you is also from James, just toward the end of the book. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's another word related to the heart. How can we apply this? Well, vigilance is a good thing, but it's insufficient. It's just not enough to fence the human heart. Behaviorism can be helpful to an extent. Uh, right now, you know, there's different, different secular psychological models tend to, to ebb and flow, and some become popular in different ages, and others become uh, popular uh, other ages. Right now, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is very popular, and I think it has a lot of things to offer to an extent. The problem is it doesn't address the heart. You may be able to snap your you know, little rubber band on your wrist every time you, you have a desire or have a thought and it kind of trains you away from that. But, but the Bible teaches that we are more than matter. We are image bearers of God. We are embodied souls. We have a spiritual dimension. Brute force of will is not enough to fence the human heart. Sitting with our thoughts. And remember when he said, I mused and the fire burned? I'm a classic overthinker. Sometimes I think that if I can just think hard enough, I can think my way out of the problem. The Bible teaches here that sitting with our thoughts alone can often be a terrible recipe to reach wrong conclusions. Just sitting there and stewing and stewing and stewing. When we sit and stew in solitude, our minds wander. We begin to make assumptions. We jump to conclusions. We project things onto other people that may or may not be there. It's like looking through one of those kaleidoscopes and everything shapeshifts. can lead us down a dangerous road. To fight this, we should follow the advice of Proverbs 11 and surround ourselves with godly friends. There is safety in a multitude of counselors. Secondly, we should find friends who are willing and have our permission to say the hard but true. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What we need is sanctification. We don't need behaviorism alone. We don't need brute force of will. We don't need vigilance by itself. We need heart change. But how? How do we do this? Well, I think this passage, at least in part, Psalm 39, gives us a couple of ingredients. And the first is this. We should remember eternity. Remember eternity and resist Functional atheism. I know that's a big... Functional atheism just means living as if there were no God. Functionally living as if God is not here. As if this life is all there is. 
as if there is no judgment coming. In response to his own self-defeat, look what, look what he says in verse 4. After he just said, basically, I failed, Lord. I tried my hardest. I tried to put a muzzle on my mouth. I tried to, 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 to white-knuckle it, and I failed. I ended up getting right back into the same old pattern. What does David say the solution is in verse 4? Oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. In other words, help me to remember what you say is true of me. That I am an image bearer of God. That I have an end that is coming. That there is a God and I will give an account one day. Help me to remember that, that the here and now is not all that there is. And that's one of the little heart tweaks we can make. God can work into us to help us respond to our situations differently. I've, I've grown up hearing people say things like, ah, oh, you know what, in a million years when the world is a ball of ice flying through space, none of this will matter. You know, as almost kind of a little bit of a don't sweat the small stuff kind of thing. I, I think what they're trying to do what they're trying to do is say, I am so small in the history of time and in the, the, the grand scheme of things, I shouldn't worry so much about what I'm worried about right now. But I actually think that people who say that sell it a little bit short. Because the world is going to last a lot longer than another million years. And it won't be a ball of ice flying through space. It will be the, the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be existing in the presence of the creator of everything. And that is so much more grand of a vision of eternity than, oh, in a million years it all won't matter. In a million years, everything we do in this life will matter because there is a just judge, and we're heading toward him. Anyway, when we sin... And this is, this is what I hope I can communicate this well. When we sin, it is always, at least in part, because we have forgotten who we are and who God is. In the moment. In the moment when we allowed ourselves a little bit of an indulgence there. It's because we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten the number of our days. We have forgotten that it's God who has made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. We have momentarily lost sight of the holiness of God, the brevity, the shortness of our lives, and our own lowliness. You see, the world teaches that the, the sure path toward fulfillment comes through maximizing our own view of ourselves and our importance. That, that you will be most fulfilled if you have a bigger view of you and how important you are. The Bible teaches instead that lowliness and humility are the true paths upward. That fulfillment comes from recognizing who we are in light 
of the God of the Bible and His existence. That's where meaning comes from. This is one of the things that we believe that's quite countercultural. And finally, the second ingredient in how to fight sin that is given in this psalm is dependence on God. Read with me verses 12 and 13. Look how he closes out this psalm after he's, con- he's confessed his sin to God in verses 1 through 3. He's confessed some truths about God in 4 through 11. And now in 12 and 13, he's basically going to get on his face before God and remember who God is. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He closes this psalm out by confessing that if he is going to change, it's going to be God who does it. If any of us are going to experience heart change, it's going to be God who does it. Otherwise, we're just mowing the grass, right? There's a, there's a difference between mowing the grass and spraying Roundup. We can mow the grass on our sin and keep it in nice, little, healthy, respectable bounds. But it's always going to grow back. Or we can ask God to sanctify us and to change us at the heart level. And that's what David does here at the end. The last, the last if this psalm were a scene... I envision it in my mind as the curtain closing as David is on his face before God asking for help. Knowing that it's God who has to change us. We must cry out to God. He is our only salvation. He is our only source of life change. Many of my prayers end this way. God, give me grace to change. Because my behaviorism my accountability, my vigilance, my brute force of will is not enough. God has to change at this level. i leave you with this. It's Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed and he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust In the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May He answer us when we call. And that same prayer, 
I think, would be an appropriate way for us to close tonight. Would you pray with me? Lord, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots. We could substitute those things for other things in our life. Some, some trust in uh, self-help methods. Some trust in, um, I, don't, I don't know, Lord, many, any number of, of outlets or solutions. I pray that we would be the people that know that if we are to change, it will be because you do it in us. And so we cry out to you. Lord, wherever there is comfort needed, would you comfort us? Wherever there is repentance needed, would you convict us? Wherever there is in our heart some crevice that is harboring some idol that we have not surrendered to you, Lord, would you shine your light in that corner of our soul and make us more holy thine? Would you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit and because you have shown your love for sinners like us on the cross of Calvary? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.